Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. You know success when you see it, or you think you do, the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This podcast has some of our favorite interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor along with Romaine Bostic and Caroline Hyde. What'd you miss? It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, the reflation trade put U.S. Treasuries on track for their worst quarter since 1980, with the global bond plunge sending yields surging to pre-pandemic levels. So we got some perspectives on these moves from Joshua Younger, head of U.S. interest rate derivative strategy at J.P. Morgan. We started by asking him if this is just the market recognizing that the U.S. economy is growing much more rapidly than we thought just a few months ago. So I, I should say I wasn't alive in 1980, so I, I can't really speak <laughs> to that nor the song um, a couple of years later for me. Uh, it, what happened this quarter, I, I think, was a recognition that things have changed. So not only Treasuries have had a record quarter, but also our forecast revision index, which tracks how we change our growth forecasts hmm. uh, for the United States and for the world. That's had its best quarter uh, since we started tracking those, those numbers. So uh, the move in Treasury yields, like you said, it is rapid and large, but the move in the expectations has been the same. Um, I, I think the thing to keep in mind is that this has not been a real yield move. This has been mostly an inflation expectations move, and there's a lot of stuff coming down the pike. You were just talking about an infrastructure plan that's 10% plus of GDP. I mean, that's a lot of, of fiscal impulse. It's a lot of inflationary pressure. Uh, it, it's it's going to take a little while to see if it flows through, but it makes sense that yields should be higher and yeah. turn premium richer if there's this risk out there. Yeah, Josh, I mean, this seems like, you know, the kind of move in yields that that is a positive or at least the underlying reasons are relatively positive. Uh, of course, that doesn't mean that folks in the market aren't going to freak out because they need something to freak out on a daily <laughs> basis. Uh, all the talk right now is about convexity, about, uh, as, as Taylor Riggs would say, you know, it's about the pace of change that maybe is a little bit of concerning here. What are you seeing with regards to uh, the pace of these moves and what that could mean for the positioning some folks had uh, prior to the start of this? Yeah, so I think the freak out you're describing is mostly talk at this point. The move in yields has, again, been, been healthy. It reflects a real change in the outlook. And, and the convexity hedgers, the people who have to hedge whether they like it or not, and ultimately end up chasing the market. We just don't see much sign of that. There's been some rebalancing and reallocation. That makes sense when you have this kind of repricing, but things like mortgage hedgers, things like CTAs, they play a role, but, but broadly speaking, move in yields has been fundamental. So I think the question is not, have yields moved a lot and quickly, it's are they disconnected from the fundamental outlook? Because that's ultimately what markets should reflect. 
So uh, talk to us, you know, there's some, we were talking about it earlier in our last block, this idea that at certain levels, uh, the 10-year yield starts to look more attractive to foreign hedged buyers. And some people say we're there or we're getting close to there. Who is uh, at 1.7 or roughly where it is? How does the math work out from your perspective such that uh, 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 foreign investors can get a good uh, pickup in yield by going into uh, U.S. Treasuries? Yeah, so it's not just the level, it's it's the hedged level, right, the FX right. hedged level. So if I'm a yen-based investor, I ultimately want yen because that's what I pay my taxes and that's what I spend in the store, right? So um, the, the environment we're in is quite productive for a foreign investor who wants to hedge it back to their home currency dollar assets because the curve is very steep. So their short-term rates are very low compared to long-term rates like the 10-year note. Uh, and there's a ton of cash in the system that can flow around. There's a ton of dollars in circulation mostly due to the Fed's expansion of its balance sheet and, and various liquidity facilities. So it's relatively inexpensive to hedge foreign exchange risk uh, and yields are relatively high compared to that cost. So I, I think broadly speaking, we're there uh, in terms of attractiveness. It's it's looked attractive for a little while. It's been, I should say, much more attractive in the past. We're kind of looking at at 2015 levels for, for a, a foreign private investor to hedge it back to yen, euros, sterling, other major major pairs. Uh, that plays a role, but ultimately those flows are not, you know, at least in our view, big enough to drive rate levels. It's more about the, the pricing of those foreign exchange futures and forwards, which is important and a big part of, of cross-border capital flows. But ultimately, the thing that's going to stop this sell-off is probably not going to be a foreign buyer. Uh, a good, great point. And with regards to just liquidity conditions overall and financial conditions, I mean, there doesn't, there seems to be some concern here uh, about, uh, I guess, that, that that could tighten or in some meaningful way. There doesn't appear to be anything right now on the horizon. But do you anticipate that with some of the, uh, with some of this recovery trade and some of the reflation trades that we're seeing, that that could crop up, that could be an issue down the road? It could. I, I, I think broadly speaking, liquidity has done pretty well, all things considered. Uh, the the participation of high frequency traders is something we track very closely because uh, if there's $100 on the screen to trade, 80 of that typically is coming from a high frequency style trader that includes the PTFs, the sort of citadels and, and virtues of the world. It also includes banks uh, like JP Morgan who have automated trading systems. So you know, those participants, those liquidity providers that really drive the ability to transact at size and at low transaction cost in the treasury market, they, they, came, they pulled back a bit uh, in late February when we had that 20 basis point day, but it was very short lived. They're back to where they are on a typical day at this point. So even though depth is lower, uh, the, the microstructure of the market, the, the, the underlying uh, availability of liquidity is, is actually pretty good. I, I think it's it's something we're not particularly concerned about. Mm -hmm. The only thing I would I would really point to is is the risk of jumps has increased. So price action over the course of the day is pretty gappy. Uh, that's been a long term trend. It really uh, corresponds to how liquidity is is distributed through the order book, um, but but at the end of the day, when when prices are gappy, the ability of high frequency traders to make markets is less. And if you get some exogenous shock, um, which in this case could be anything, it could be something to to the bearish side for growth, the bullish side for treasuries. Some some potential growth scare uh, would be very hard for markets to digest at this point. Do you have a theory for what that is? For what might have changed such that prices are more uh, jump risk are more of a jump risk? Yeah, so I, I think it's this this growth in high frequency trading activity. So oh, got it. 10 years ago, they were half the market. Now they're 80%. And it's very hard to be a high frequency trader really close to the traded level during very volatile times. So, so liquidity tends to pull back 
and basically is only available far from the current currently traded price, at least in, in size. And that means there's an air gap between the current the current market level and and all of that available liquidity. The the potential to intermediate is just kind of disconnected a little bit more from current market prices. With regards to just we talk a lot here about what's happening on the longer end of the curve, of course, and of course what the Fed can control at the shorter end of the curve. A lot of traders have been pointing out what's been going on with the five year and what's been going on kind of in the middle part there and some of the risk that they're starting to see there that maybe the rest of us aren't paying attention to. Yeah, the long end is interesting because you ultimately have demographic type demand from pensions and, and long-term investors and insurance companies and so forth. So when rates rise, there's natural demand that comes into the market from that category, the, the demographic demand component. The belly is really where it's most sensitive to uh, the Fed outlook. So if we think the Fed's going to hike at some point in the next two, three, maybe four years, uh, as we move, as the market moves around that expected first hike date, the, uh, the the fair value for that five-year treasury note can move around quite a bit. So you're very sensitive to the, to the policy outlook. And at this point, as much as Powell's out there saying they're not going to hike anytime soon, there's a big difference between two, three, four, and five years until the next hike. And we just have very little sense of how things are going to play out over those kinds of timelines. Uh, final question here. I think we talked over a week ago, right after that Fed decision where they're not going to extend the SLR exemption, and that got people interested in this stuff for about 30 minutes, wondering what that meant for banks and rates and their balance sheet constraints. Now that there's been a little time to digest it and get a sense of how banks are going to react to the uh, news, what do we see, what do you see as the impact and where might it show up in pricing of certain parts of the market? So I don't think you'll see it show up immediately or necessarily at all. I mean, remember SLR, the supplementary leverage ratio, was in place in its prior format for many years before the events of, of March. Right. 2020. And so this is about underlying vulnerability. Uh, and it's about how banks would react to an exogenous shock of sufficient size. And I think the key here is in, in the absence of those carve outs, especially for the market making part of a, of a bank uh, operation, there's this risk that it's going to be hard to intermediate during periods of acute stress. And the, the level of stress that rises to that has kind of come down, meaning a smaller shock relative to last year would probably generate a similar outcome, but it's still a very large shock. We're not there yet. I mean, th this is a healthy, fast, but but totally understandable repricing in, in the rates market. This is not some exogenous factor that's kind of coming out of nowhere like COVID, where right. you have to replace your expectations in a week um, to, to very different levels. Now, the first quarter saw a lot of volatility in the treasury markets, especially around the one-year anniversary of the treasury market blow-up last March. We spoke about the disruption we've seen in the treasury market with Vanderbilt Law School professor Yesha Yadav. Yesha formerly worked as legal counsel at the World Bank in its finance, private sector development and infrastructure unit. The regulation of this market uh, is really a five alarm fire at this point. Um, ah. The way in which this market is really regulated is not set up um, to give regulators the opportunity and the equipment to be able to see the risks that are developing in a treasury market that has become um, highly automated, uh, interconnected, and sophisticated. And so what we're seeing today is a market structure that basically lacks very uh, very uh, core guardrails that are present and common in other marketplaces like equities and derivatives. So what we have, have here um, in the treasury space is a market that does not have a lead primary coordinating regulator. Um, unlike equities and derivatives, the treasury market regulation is divided uh, yeah. between five or more 
uh, regulators, none of which have any kind of uh, lead and coordinating authorities. Right. So what we have here is a system in which it's very, very hard work to come up with even very basic laws to be able to guard and, and, and safeguard the market. When we talk about some of the regulation or the lack of regulatory issues here, Yesha, I am curious about whether the risk, I mean, we know when we talk about equities, we talk about derivatives, we, the risk is pretty apparent in what you do with there. When we talk about the Treasury market and we talk about bond markets, the risk tends to be a little bit lower. So maybe there's an argument that you can make there that maybe you don't need the same regulation. Thanks so much for saying that, Romain. I mean, and, that, I th and I think that is the assumption that has guided regulation in the past. Um, this is a risk-free asset. Um, it has uh, historically been traded by primary dealers over the counter. And so this market has been relatively sleepy and simple um, in, its, in its market structure. But that has changed radically over the last decade or so. We have seen a market that has automated uh, rapidly. It's now a, a market that is dominated by high-frequency trading. Um, 75 to 80% of this market in the inter-dealer space is the high-frequency market. And so the risk that we see just operationally and logistically um, and to liquidity in the equities and derivatives space that have arisen on account of this changing market structure, on account of automation, HFT and interconnection, um, is something that we're also going to see and have to see in the U.S. Treasury market. Um, this became very apparent uh, in the context of the flash rally in 2014 uh, when the pricing became disrupted um, and still there's no explanation as to why. Um, and uh, we've had an outage in the U.S. Treasury market, in the interdealer market, in the major platform broker tech in 2000. Uh, and 19. Um, in addition, obviously, we also have had uh, this major blow up that happened in March last uh, last year. And that has arisen on account of the liquidity pressures that are becoming endemic in this market, the fact that we're seeing liquidity essentially disappear. Um, and that has cost uh, to price stability. Um, this is the market that is supposed to perform when every other market is collapsing. And so um, the, the, our appetite and tolerance for any kind of risk in this market, be it logistical, uh, operational, arising on account of a very automated market structure, or liquidity-based risks that arise on account of having um, sudden disappearances in liquidity, these are risks that we can absolutely not tolerate in the U.S. Treasury market. Uh, we cannot tolerate so, them in any market, but certainly not here. So in your view, structurally, what would be the, the biggest first step that we could do to eliminating, if not all the risks, because you're probably never going to perfectly eliminate all market structure risks, but they're sort of like the biggest ones that are out there. Well, I think, you know, the first step here is to get uh, regulators on board and on the same page. Uh, yesterday, as we saw, Chair Yellen um, had come up with a list of five priorities for the FSOC, for the Financial Stability Oversight Council. Um, and I think, respectfully, she needs to add one more, uh, which is to bring the U.S. Treasury market structure regulation under the purview of a guiding authority, a coordinating authority. And I think in this case, uh, the Financial Stability Oversight Council, the FSOC, is a great candidate. And why we need that is to have regulators to come on board together to come up with a plan. Um, to understand how this market works. And I don't think fully that we have an idea here. And the reason why we don't have an idea here is because we don't have information. Um, so John Romain, as you'd asked earlier, uh, this is a market that lacks fundamental guardrails. And one of them is a lack of reporting in this market. In 2017, we had a reform to bring greater reporting into this market, but it's by no means comprehensive. We are having major significant systemic gaps here. Uh, PTFs, um, uh, many of whom don't report to FINRA, 
do not have to report their trades directly. In addition, hedge funds that do not uh, come under the purview of FINRA do not report their trades. So uh, the blow up that you mentioned last year with the cash basis futures, we still don't know what the impact of that trading was um, in this space because we just don't have the information. So uh, a first step here, I think, would be to bring regulators on board under the FSOC. And then I think we need to consider a whole bunch of other reforms uh, to put them on the table uh, to, 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 to bring just a basic sense of safeguarding, safeguarding and security to this market. We only have um, about... Go, go ahead. We only have about one minute left, but I'm curious. I mean, can you give us kind of a specific idea of what one of those reforms would be? Well, I think, you know, one of the reforms uh, to tackle the lack of liquidity or the disappearing liquidity in this market is to think about affirmative market-making obligations, for one. Um, so, um, you know, we did have a specialist system in which traders were required to stay on the uh, on the market in times of trouble. And I wonder whether it's time to think about that again in the context of U.S. Treasury markets specifically. Um, and the reason for that is, is that this market has to work. Um, balance sheets have to be equipped to deal with the kind of pressures that come up when the market's under stress. Yeah. And so having an affirmative market-making obligation here for both HFTs and uh, bank dealers is something that I think should be on the table. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business, demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. And markets ended the shortened trading week on a high note with the S&P hitting 4,000. The benchmark notching another record, closing above the record for the first time ever. If you look at the estimates of the S&P 500, it's only more optimism that analysts see from here. So we got a recap on the first quarter and the outlook for the path ahead for markets with Nir Kesar. He is the founder of Unison Advisors. He's also a Bloomberg opinion columnist. We started by asking Nir how hard it is to be a bear right now. Yeah, I have to say, I'm not sure that I can say it any better than that. That's exactly it. All right, thanks and, you for know, coming on that. here. We'll see you at uh, S&P 5000 right. now. Keep going. Uh, I'll call it a day from here. You know, this has all the markings of an early recovery. I mean, it just looks just like an early recovery. You have a broad reflation of stocks across the board. You can see that in the first quarter if you compare the S&P 500 equal weight index to the broad S&P 500. Um, you know, the equal weight index won by a good margin. That tells you that, you know, this early recovery is lifting you know, stocks across the board. You can see that, as you mentioned, in the earnings expectations. You know, we had EPS on the S100 of roughly 120 last year. The expectation for 2022 is close to 200. I mean, that's a huge, it's almost a doubling of earnings. So that's that's hugely bullish. The only exception is valuations. I mean, usually in this part right. of the cycle, you have beaten down valuations. In this case, the valuations are near where they were at the top of the dot-com bust. And by yeah. the way, interestingly, if you look back at dot-com, the doc, this looks like dot-com in also in the sense that at, in 2002, when dot-com had bottomed and things started to turn around, the S&P was roughly as expensive as it is today. 
that's highly unusual. This case and the dot-com uh, episode are really the only two you can point to in modern history for that. And we've talked to a lot of people here, near who've tried to draw comparisons here to some of the market and, more importantly, some of the economic cycles that we saw in the 60s and also in the 40s. The idea here that there's something uh, much larger, much more structural uh, taking place right now in the economy that is not only going to justify some of these valuations, but sort of take us to the moon, as Taylor would say. Uh, and that might itself might sort of at least put off uh, whatever correction would ever come somewhere far, far, far down the road. Well, I mean, yeah, it all depends ultimately, I think, on two things. It, you know, wh whether, the, whether the earnings estimates come through and ultimately how investors feel about it, what price tag they're willing to put on those earnings. And the reason I think the point about correction can't be made enough is that usually when people say things like, you know, I'm, I, you know, I'm pointing out the fact that the market is historically expensive, usually I find that investors hear that and they say, oh, a crash is coming, a correction is coming. And I think it's worth always repeating that it means nothing of the sort. I mean, there is nothing that we have that will tell us in the near term what is going to happen to stock prices, not valuations, not any other signal as far as I can tell. And so what it does mean, though, is it tells you something about the expected returns. And if you just break those out in terms of dividends, earnings growth, and the changes in valuation, here's my math. The dividend yield right now is about 1.5%. The earnings growth since 1990 has been about 5% a year. If you assume that's going to continue, you're at 65 Now what's going to happen? Do you think valuations will expand from here? I think it's highly unlikely because they're already at historic highs. So if they go nowhere, you're looking at a 6.5% return. If they, if, they, if they contract, you're looking at a lower return than that. So to me, that's the useful takeaway from all this. In the, and in the near term, you know, the, the price will do what it'll do. You know, I don't understand the valuations being similar to dot-com levels. Like, because I remember, like, that era, like, that's sort of when I first got interested in markets. And there was so much, like, absolute garbage. And not only was their total garbage listed, they had huge market caps. And, like, you look at some of these stocks that are, like, seem kind of bubbly today, like some of these like fuel cell companies. Some of them were traded back then, except their market caps were like 80 times bigger and they weren't making any money back then either. So is it, you know, like, is it that the S&P 500 specifically looks comparable valuations, but then if you just added the thousand dot com IPOs in 1998 and 1999, like help me reconcile this because it still feels like there's just no way this market is as expensive as back then. Well, it depends how you look at it. I mean, all of that, all of that, I think is 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 true in the sense that first of all, every market is different, right? right. So if you if you peel back the layers, you're going to notice the pricing is different in different places. For example, a lot of people have pointed out that this expensive this market is yes, it's expensive, but a lot of companies in this market, or you know, certainly during the pandemic and before, have made tons of money. Whereas notably, there were a lot of big cap companies during the run to the dot com that weren't making any money. So that's a huge distinction. And there's a bunch of other distinctions. Uh, if you look at, at a uh, sort of stock by stock comparison, you will notice those differences. But in my view, I think the only thing that really matters is what is the price tag ultimately that, that investors are putting on the earnings of the market more broadly, because most people own the broad market, right? They're not individually picking right. stocks, although I get that more people are doing that. And when you look at that measure, it looks almost identical to the top of the dot com. And, and just real quickly here, I mean, with regards to the moves that we've seen uh, in yields and the way that that has spooked some people, this idea here uh, that you could start to see some erosion uh, in any sort of earnings growth that we do get, uh, how, are we, how are you looking at the balance between uh, that rise in yields and, and everything else? Well, I mean, that's, that's going to be problematic. Not only the, the rise in yields could be a threat to earnings, but 
you know, Biden's plans to raise corporate tax rates. Yeah. Uh, you know, that could be a threat to earnings. And I think I think you have to consider all that as an investor, because ultimately, you know, when when earnings uh, when the earnings forecast is so bullish, there's I think more prob there's a greater probability that things could go wrong. And particularly in this environment with rates going higher and the aggressive posture by government, you know, I think that there is a higher probability than usual to start with. So investors really have to think about that. And, and I think that goes to the price tag that they're putting on earnings. My guess is they're going to rethink that valuation level. But that's just a guess. Obviously. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business, demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Now, NFTs, non-fungible tokens, that's become the hot new acronym. Mars House, the world's first new digital NFT home, has recently sold for more than $500,000. A New York Times columnist wrote about NFTs and then auctioned off the pieces in NFT. SNL even rapped about NFTs. So to learn more about them, we caught up with Priyanka Desai, who is a member of the NFT-focused DAO, or Decentralized Autonomous Organization called Flamingo. We started by asking Priyanka to explain what an NFT-focused DAO really is and how one goes about participating. It's a great question, and NFTs are all the rage, I'm sure you're aware right now. Um, so DAOs literally stand for a Decentralized Autonomous Organization. You can kind of think of them as curators or tastemakers of this emergent art landscape that we're seeing. They're headless organizations and there is no leader. So basically people come together, pull their capital and then democratically vote um, on where that capital goes. And, and they basically use it as a way to crowdsource various collection strategies uh, through, through a completely so, democratic system. So Priyanka, be undemocratic for a moment for us <laughs> and just give us your viewpoint because I know you can't speak for the rest of your DAO, but be a tastemaker for us. I mean, initially I got it. I saw the digital art which you could own and then you could have these beautiful main like TV screens basically to show them. I understood the connection with music. I understood the, the collectibles. And uh, but, but then we get into fake houses and into NFTs made of tweets and of stories. And I'm understanding how that is a trend and how it's something that you think will sell. I mean, I guess it's uh, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, really. I mean, people are excited here. And when you're getting an NFT, you're getting a token that's tied to a media object like art, music, and really anything else, any digital content. So, you know, if people want to see value in it, I think that's great. Um, like a lot of asset classes, I think there's a lot of value floating around. But what's really kind of beautiful about NFTs is, um, you know, it's giving creative workers in this creative class online that we've just seen bubble over over the past decade plus, um, the ability to support themselves and represent their work digital, digitally 
And it also gives um, the holder of these works to prove that they're owner of something that could be a cultural icon eventually, um, or possibly have some sort of value tied to it. Um, so for example, if you are an enthusiast or tastemaker that um, can prove that you're an early supporter of someone like Francis Bacon, um, that definitely hmm. had social and economic value over time, I think. So, you know, it's great to support art and creativity and all that stuff. But what if I just like want to make a lot of money? Because I see a lot of high price tags with this stuff. How would one even go about trying to anticipate what will be hot? Because there's just a bazillion NFTs being minted every second, I'm sure. And most of them are worth literally uh, nothing. How would you like think about this question or approach the question of where lasting value would be? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, if you individually want to go check out a marketplace um, that has these NFTs and kind of pick what you like, you know, based on your respective budget. I mean, there's, you know, zillions of amazing marketplaces like Super Rare, OpenSea. Yeah. Uh, you know, what a DAO does really well is it kind of cuts through the noise a little bit. So you have this community of like 60 plus people uh, come together crowdsource these strategies, uh, you know, kind of figure out what artists and, and taste as a community they want to basically signal to the rest of the general internet. Um, and, and I think that's kind of a special way to, to collect. What's the latest thing that you guys, from a crowdsource perspective, chose to invest in? Are you able to say like what type of media it was and, and why you saw value in it? Yeah, um, I actually our entire collection is publicly available. But, um, you know, I would say recently the, you know, the members of the DAO have been really excited about something called CryptoPunks. So they're like these 10,000 pixelated characters um, that really represent different rarity traits. So it's almost like art, almost like collectibles, and they're generating tons of value. What else besides simple art? I mean, so you have this image, whether it's the CryptoPunk or the Beeple. People talk about in-game items or in-world items that could be valuable in some way. Like, what are the sort of, like, next types of assets, I guess, that could uh, become important part of the NFT ecosystem? Yeah, I mean, so there's. I would say that the Flamingo strategies actually span that as well. So, you know, what we were talking about before, as far as digital art, there's a lot of commissioning of digital art by this like emergent artist class online happening. Um, there's also, as you mentioned, like CryptoPunks collectibles. Um, but, you know, to your, to your uh, point here with like gaming and metaverses, there's quite a bit happening. So, um, you know, you can imagine the amount of val value that exists in gaming today, like Fortnite and others. Um, NFTs, mm. in many ways, give you the ability to unlock that value. So, um, you know, with skins or fashion online that people spend tons of money on, you can kind of float from one metaverse to another. Um, you can kind of signal that through a digital museum or gallery um, and kind of float from one space to another, almost like a Ready Player One type of uh, kind of reality in some, some regard. Very briefly, we've got about 90 seconds, but do you worry that the frenzy and some of the silliness, mm. dare I call it, around NFT is going to be in any way a negative um, headwind for NFT in the same way that decentralized tokens were a couple of years ago? Yeah, I mean, I think just like really anything else, people are excited about this. There's a lot of new people coming in. Um, we're seeing just an outpour of, I mean, you mentioned New York Times, uh, Time Magazine, there's, you know, every media, uh, many media outlets kind of 
playing around with this. I think we're in early, early days. Um, mm. So we're going to see a bunch of awesome, amazing, different things, but also probably some kind of bizarre, you know, things emerge with people right. leveraging NFTs. So um, I, I think that we, like you mentioned before, we'll stay tuned I, as as uh, as the years go by. I'm sure we'll kind of understand this landscape a little bit better. And that's it for What You Missed This Week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, let's face it, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. There's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.